less than a couple of weeks ago, uh, where we just saw, we saw, oh, no, got, got on the wrong way around, sorry. Let's go there, right. So we've got this sense that in chapter 17, we had the vision of the woman and the beast, and now we have this destruction and the comment on it uh, that's happening. And then within this chapter, um, which has got quite a complex sort of pattern, because there's a lot of people, there's a lot of people, imagine a play, there's lots of people sort of saying their part, uh, and that's quite important. So anyway, verses 1 to 3, we have this mighty angel. We're not sure if, if it's an angel that's appeared before. Uh, and then we have this warning, a voice from heaven. Uh, and then we have this comprehensive kind of sentence, uh, the, the, the vilification, if you like. And then we have the kings and some of the merchants of the earth mourning. We have the curious, verse 14, a comment on what's happened. And then we have the merchants mourning, the shipmasters mourning, and then heaven called to rejoice. So in all of this doom and tragedy that's going on, there's still this sort of spark, this, this, this lightness, this voice that says this is actually a good thing, which is obviously really challenging. And then the, the destruction and the discovery at the end. So the angel's declaration, let's have a think about that. To start with, we have another mighty angel uh, and his glorious appearance. Remember, we've come across this because um, the earth was illuminated by his splendor uh, that tells us that he's associated, uh, he's got God's purposes in mind. He represents God and he's got some elements of that. He's, he, God's splendor is around him. And with a mighty voice, he pronounces uh, God's judgment uh, on Babylon. And he says with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. Now, I don't know if you've noticed that, that uh, is fallen in, in the in the. Older translations, it's Babylon is fallen, is fallen. And that's a prophetic device uh, that's used to declare something that is as good as done. The sentence has been passed and the destruction has been decided. The guilt has been established and this is something that in time has been, is a certainty. It will happen. It is a thing that is going to occur. This is something that's been dealt with and so it's, it's a finality to it and it's, that's quite important because we see that this place is heading for destruction in verse 2 we read uh, that Babylon's become a home for demons and a haunt for every evil spirit a haunt for every unclean and detestable bird I'm not going to ask you what your favorite birds are very um, but this notion that it was a dwelling place for, place for demons, very important. Because earlier on in chapter 9, when we were looking at some of the, uh, the letters, and when we go back to Corinthians and Colossians, there's this very important notion, a very important principle, uh, that the things to which the Gentiles sacrifice have meaning. When the Gentiles, in Paul's time, were sacrificing as part of their, their, their temple worship, they weren't just worshipping to dumb idols. There were things going on. And in uh, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, verse 20, Paul writes, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. It's clearly an issue for the early church with its very highly visible and very present cults. Remember, we talked about in the early chapters of Revelation how different trades had their own sort of gods. 
And we find that in Paul's journey in Acts, the cult of Artemis and Alexander the silversmith. It wasn't just money. There was spiritual power being sort of traded on the side. And that might feel uh, particularly unfamiliar to us today. Uh, a lot of our goods arrive from we know not where, or care probably. But we don't really have that kind of association with the things that we need. So this is quite an important uh, element actually. How do we live in the light of this? What if there were an unholy spiritual presence working within normal human activity? What if this notion of evil still having a power base, I'm not going to name it because I don't know it, but what if it had an evil, what if there was a power base where malign forces were actually doing things to try and, and draw or trap people in? Um, if, you're, if you're a fan of YouTube, and I'm afraid I am, um, there's a lovely interview between Jeremy Paxman, who's a bit Marmite, isn't he? And Tony Blair. I'm not going to even comment. Um, but there's a very good interview between Tony Blair and Jeremy Paxman. And Paxman uh, was, was haranguing Tony Blair about accepting uh, donations from certain publishing houses of certain newspapers. And Tony Blair was saying, well, this is fine, this is okay. And then Jeremy Paxman reads out a list of other titles that this publishing house also produces, which are clearly pornographic. You can look it up for yourself, I'm not going to read it. But they were quite, sort of quite derogatory, quite despicable, <laughs> quite misogynistic terms for, for magazines that this publishing house, from which Tony Blair had received donations, owned. So there's something out there. There's something out there to be able to say, look, not everything we buy is, you know, is, is, is clean. And sometimes it's worth a little bit of thought about well, where does this come from and, and who am I buying it from? And I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, slightly disconcerting that Netflix and, uh, and Disney and Warden Media, they're all sort of starting to move away from these southern states of America where at the moment they're doing a lot of film work. And I'm not, I'm not supporting one way or the other, but they're saying it's because of these states' issues or policies or legislation on, on abortion or pro-life choices, the, the organisations are now making distinctions. And that's what is nicknamed virtue signalling, where an organisation basically says, we think this is a good thing, and, and a lot of the time it's, it's, it's not quite what God would want. But it looks good. And so they add it to who they are. So just, you know, something to be aware of. But maybe we do need to sort of be careful about what we do. Where are we getting our stuff from? Do we ever check? Don't know. But nothing is untainted. I remember years ago, you know, Church of England got into trouble because it was selling electric batons to riot police in South Korea, was it? Or you know, Church of England was investing in hardware that was being used to oppress other people. It's really hard. And only a couple of years ago, you know, Wonga.com and the Archbishop. You know, so hard. And some of these things aren't good for other people. And that's important because one of the things we saw when we looked at chapter 17 was the sort of the self-destructive nature of evil, that in the end, the kings turn on the woman and the beast. But what we find when we get to this discovery, if you like, in verse 24, is that this evil is also completely consuming. It takes in anyone that it can. It sucks and draws them in wherever it can, and the saints are in there too. 
So it's quite a powerful, uh, it's quite a powerful and sort of slightly disturbing thought, really. Sorry. If you don't sleep well tonight, it's my fault. It's not going to be the weather, is it? So, um, then, so just, just an important thought, really, that one of, the, one of the judgments of the angel is that the world is corrupt. The world is corrupt, and it's going to cor- it can corrupt you. Because what happens then in verse 4 is we have this lovely voice. I heard another voice from heaven come out of her, my people. Now, I think this has probably been overused in recent political debates, but God has got a people. This is God's voice. God has a people. Only he chooses a people to be his own. Only he can. And that's important. He says, come out of her city, the my people. In Jeremiah chapter 51, uh, he uses those same words for a city that's about to be judged. But look at what's happening here. Uh, this is also about our character. There's a principle here, isn't there? Yes, avoid, don't get wrapped up in, in the punishment that's coming so that you won't, will not receive any of her plagues so that you will not share in her sins so you will not share in her sins is about our character come out of that be careful how you think be careful what you do so that you won't share in the sins of Babylon well what 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 an awesome and, and, and sort of large thought to take away with us But it's a principle because God is going to render to Babylon according to her sin. And it would be awful, would it not, to be caught up in it? It would be awful to be found caught up and entangled in the sins of Babylon. It's also slightly tricky if we just press on a little bit to verse 6. It's a tricky little translation because second part of verse 6 says, Pay her back double for what she has done. Um, It's quite a tricky idea, actually. Uh, and the translation is probably better off understood as, as she has given, that, uh, so she will receive. Because it's very interesting to, kind of, to, dis, to decide, and I'm not sure we can, but is God a vindictive kind of character? Is God the kind of God who would actually pay back people double for stuff they had done? Principles of the Old Testament law, so-called lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, would suggest otherwise. Is God the sort of person who just, sorry, the button he's about to press says smite? Is God the sort of God who would just arbitrarily punish people, or does he actually take into account, is there a symmetry? Is there a reckoning between what we've done and how we're treated? Well, actually, the Bible says no, because he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. <laughs> that's, that's the asymmetry, if you like, of grace. But his character isn't vindictive, is it? And I think that's really important. And when we read something like this, and we look at the world going wrong, and we read something like this, we go, ooh, I'm not sure if the English works there. Because the, the Greek could be, could be double, or it could be duplicate. Make something like it is to match it. And that was probably a better reading of it. Uh, But it's important, actually, because there's something about our attitude. If this is about character, then are we the sorts of people who, when we are offended, seek to heap more on top? Hands up if you've ever done that. Just me, again. Okay. You are a lovely lot. (laughs) Really, really good. (laughs) But it's important, isn't it? When I was listening to Richard talking this morning, I wondered how good, how well we see things for what they are. Or how we res- do we respond 
in God's way or do we respond in a fairly human and predictable way? Do we see anger coming out of a place of hurt and rejection or do we see it as something that's an affront to us? Do we have the kind of compassion that God might have or do we look forward to rubbing our hands and, and praying that God would throw down fire? God doesn't appear to be a vindictive kind of God. He matches what people have done with how he judges them. And that's what we see uh, in verses 7 and on. We see that, um, 7 and 8, because we see that this Babylon, she talks about, I sit as a queen, I'm not a widow, and I'll never mourn. Just as in Isaiah 47, Babylon sort of made these huge claims about herself. We see that God matches those claims with death, mourning, and famine. There's a measured, it's a measured judgment, isn't it? Babylon's boasts are actually her undoing, and God's justice is delivered based on the things that she stood against him on. The things that we stand against God on are the things he's going to deal with us on, aren't they? If our lives are swimming along perfectly, and then there's this one little area, what do you think God's going to work on? Is he going to say more for this? Or is he going to say, you know what, that's holding you back. That's not, you're not supposed to be carrying that with you. And we can offer it or we can let him deal with it. One way or the other, he'll get to us. Because he wants us to be formed and prepared for this place he's made for us. And then we see through this, uh, the, this passage, we see the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning they weep and they mourn and how terrible it is oh no what an awful thing they've done and it's going to be terrible because this doom comes in one hour swift and final is the end not drawn out but swift and quick and final and then we have this curious verse sorry so up to verses 13 we kind of have a shopping list of the stuff you could get in rome the things upon which they had built their luxury, the things upon which their wealth and power were built. And then we have this verse 14, the rest. Now, the curious thing about verse 14 is it's not in the same tense as the rest of the passage. So remember when I said this was a bit like listening to a, an interview after a news event? Verse 14 stands out because the merchants, the, sea, the merchants, the seafarers and the kings all speak with the same sort of voice and talk about Babylon in the same sort of way. But this voice in verse 14 is moved. It talks about the second person singular and the voice is more accusative rather than, oh, how terrible for Babylon. It was kind of, well, it should be terrible for Babylon. Verse 14 is this this. This powerful little thing, this little comment, if you like. The fruit you long for is gone. The fruit you long for is gone. All your riches and splendor have vanished, never to be recovered. It's like this comment. It's like John, we think it's John, but it could be the angel. It's not God because he's already spoken and he's not, and it doesn't refer to him again. Uh, but it could, be the, it could possibly be the kings. But the most likely candidate is John. As before, when he commented in Revelation 17 about the things that were going on, and he was, he was amazed. So here we see John observing what's going on and just 
That phrase, the fruit you long for, is gone. Everything you set your heart on is nothing. It's disappeared, it's vapour. The mist has blown away. And that's a powerful, that's a powerful sentence and something that we ought to hold on to, actually, I think. Then as we, as we press on, we see that the kings and the merchants and the seafarers uh, continue to mourn. All of the wealth that they had, they had accrued, all of the, the power that they'd got as a result, uh, they're, 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 they now mourn its passing. The dust on their heads we see in verse uh, 19, I think it is, uh, they, they are mourning. This is a terrible thing that's happened and they cry out, as Tim read, whoa, whoa, everything's gone wrong and there's nothing we can do uh, to help you. And then verse 20, which curiously in this translation has been put together as one piece, sort of joined to verse 19. It's quite an interesting idea. Maybe it is. Rejoice over her, O heaven. Rejoice, saints and apostles and prophets. Call to rejoice. Probably the angel, probably the angel who's about to act, uh, probably uh, you know, that voice of something's going to come and an encouragement to God's people to not lose heart in the face of this destruction, but to see its end point, to see that there is something beyond, that this can't rule unabated, it can't uh, carry on unrestrained, that there is an end point. And we see this, we have this sort of idea of, there we go, not that one, that one. We have this idea of this rock being thrown into the sea to remind us uh, of the mountain, the blazing mountain being wrapped up and thrown into the sea in chapter 8. And the judgment is, becomes this dirge of what's going to happen. And we find in this, this little poetic, uh, this low, little poetic uh, dirge here at the end that there's uh, this phrase, never more found in you, never more heard in you. Utter desolation. It repeats three times. It reinforces nothing good is going to happen in you anymore. Whatever you were based on, whatever good, whatever, whatever joy you had is gone. Utter desolation for Babylon. The craftsmen, we see in verse uh, 23, uh, that there's this, uh, this uh, by the magic, by your magic spell, all nations were led astray. And there again, that teasing idea of how people had put together things that would tempt with spiritual power. And... This, 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 uh, this final sort of song, if you like, this dirge, uh, draws, draws attention to that mischief that evil can play. And then we find that all-consuming, all who have been Babylon was destroyed. In her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been killed on the earth. She drank herself on the blood of the martyrs, drank herself silly on it. All-consuming, never-ending, destructive nature of evil is dealt with which is good news isn't it we're well, we all terrified now <laughs> a little bit scared myself I don't know where I'm going to go to co-op and I don't know, who, I don't know where the money's going to end up <laughs> but it's important what, what, what are we going to take away from this sort of passage what can we say well I think one of the phrases that really stood out was that verse 14 the fruit you longed for Babylon's presented as a city obsessed with luxury and the thirst to exploit all means to have it. International trade, I'm going to be careful here because some of you work for organisations that I can't even know what you do. Um, I'm not even looking at you. 
over there. But, but international trade and military conquest go hand in hand, don't they? Pretty much. We're going to conquer these people so they can buy our stuff and we'll be rich. It's the way of the world. It's the way of history. And with it goes the aggrandizement of we are powerful. We have conquered. We have done well. Look at us. And with that comes and a sense of importance and a sense of not needing God because we can make our own way in the world. And those are important things to just have at the back of our mind because John's lament is to examine ourselves. What is the fruit your soul longs for? Hopefully we've been talking about it in the mornings and you've been paying attention. That's the fruit I want. That's the fruit I want in my life, more godly character the power of the Holy Spirit at work in me the ability to not deal with people like other people but to deal with people and meet with them like God would those are the sorts of fruit we want aren't they because the kings of the earth could have had anything but what they wanted was more and to get it they forsook who they were God doesn't raise up kings just so that they can you know, prance around They're supposed to represent people to God and lead people to him. These leaders did not do that. And we have the same question and dilemma all the time. To whom do we point? Where do we we point people? Where are we leading people? We won't find it in things or in riches or in wealth or in power. And those that have pursued this things recklessly will have it stripped away from them come the hour. So this chapter calls us to think about two things. How are we going to be distinctive? Oh, no, two there. Right, How are we going to be distinctive? How do we stand out? We're called not to be like the people for whom the judgment is being stored up. Verse 4 was very careful about that, wasn't it? So you will not share in her sins, so you will not receive any of her plagues. To be a distinctive group of people. In our conversation with, in, and the, the things that we're faced with, rather than a sense of legalism of, oh, God says this and God says that, maybe we should just be able to say, you know what, I don't think that's good for me. I don't want to get involved in gossip. I would, I would hate it if people said things like that about me, so I'm not going to say it in this room either. Maybe a sense of integrity that makes us just stand out in our workplace, the way we speak with people, the clubs, organisations we belong to, where people say, yeah, you know that one, they take their faith really seriously. Because even in the small things, they're gracious but firm. You don't need to beat people over the head, you just need to show them a better way. And it's a call to be uh, discerning. It's a call for a deeper spiritual life, to be able to say, I'm faced with these scenarios, Lord, what would you have me do? At drop-in this week, we were comparing how, you know, we were rejoicing that God wrote what law on our hearts so that we're able to understand what to do. So that we know, because our relationship with him, that he helps us decide. He helps us choose how to speak, how to live, how to react, so that we can be clear. So what are the things your soul longs for? What is the fruit you want to see? They're things that God is prepared to put into us to prepare us for this place, this far off country where all will one day be well.
Shall we stop and pray? Father, it's a terrifying thing to be in your hands, the hands of the living God, but we thank you. We thank you that we're in your hands.